Ben, let's go visit Lake Placid, New York on a cold February night in 1980, where, despite the winter chill, things are definitely heated. Because this is the site of an epic struggle, more than a mere match of skill. We're talking about the 1980 Winter Olympics. The event we'll be focusing on is a showdown, and not just any showdown, Ben. We're oh. talking the USA versus USSR, which at that time was still the thick of the Cold War. Whoa. And so, imbued with all of that tension, we'll witness an underdog ice hockey team facing off against opponents who are seasoned professionals for a match that would go down in history as the miracle on ice. Whoa, okay, this is this whoa. We're gonna do a sport thing? This is big. All right, everyone, welcome to 80s High, the podcast that looks back at that iconic and wild decade and asks itself, what in the wide, wide world of sports is a going on here? I'm your host, Chris. Hi, and I'm Ben. (laughs) (laughs) And this is 80s High. Really? Okay. Why World of Sports? All right. I like it. Look, curveball. I thought I'd throw in a little, uh, you know, a little quote from Blazing Saddles. One of our movies. Yeah, Blazing Saddles that we might, I don't know, maybe cover one day. Oh my gosh. The entire Mel Brooks collection will eventually happen on this show. God, I love those movies. Obviously. How's it going, Ben? Feeling great and fighting off Spring's allergies. So I'm super ready for like crisp, clear, delicious audio. Well, this is a episode for battle and fighting because oh, we're yeah. talking about a topic very near and dear to both of us, uh, of which we have a uh, a battery of knowledge, a wealth <laughs> of history and context. Wait, are we finally doing batteries not included? Uh, no, I think we're doing sport ball. Oh, sport ball. Right, sport, sport ball. ball. So obviously, we're huge sport ballers. You know, we go to every single Fight and Mogwai's game. We cheer on all the teams. I'm a big fan of fighting Mogwai pool, competitive pool. <laughs> like in the pool, like swimming, competitive pool Well, swimming. it's tabletop pool in a pool. Yeah, which is impressive. Yeah. If you jump the table, you have to swim down to the bottom of the deep end and go get the ball back. I think and that's then really all, impressive. And just everything goes rolling everywhere. Yeah. It's just like a big pool floaty. Yeah. It's, 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 the, it's an interesting game. The floating but, you know, Mogwais, they call the flo- themselves. <laughs> The float fantastic. <laughs> uh, so we're familiar with the fight Mogwais, but- We're going to talk about a really big topic today. Mm -hmm. And in order to talk about this big topic, we got to bring in the big guns. So guess what, Ben? Mm. We're going to have an expert in our corner. We have the Theisman Trophy. That's a thing, right? Is that coming in to explain it to us? The trophy is going to talk to us? The Stanley Cup! You got got the the Stanley, for which the cup is named after. Stanley is here. Mr. Cup himself is here. Uh... (laughs) Who is our actual Gandalf who's going to navigate us through this thing that we can do on our own? 
It is our very own chief sports correspondent and head coach, Aaron. Aaron, welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. Glad to be here. Yay. So, were you cheering for him, Ben? Yeah, I wanted, I want like a crowd sound effect when you introduce him. <laughs> Put me in, coach. I'm ready to play. It's awesome. Welcome to the show, man. Aaron came here, folks, willingly, knowing that we know so little about sports. And, you know, we're going to be throwing him some wild pitches, some curveballs, and maybe a few wicked googlies. <laughs> I got wicked googled once, and I really – the doctor takes a while to treat one of those. It's a, it's a severe rash. I mean, that happens good. to everyone. It's a, it's a high school thing, right of passage, <laughs> right of passage. <laughs> you, all, you all catch the wicked googles once in a while. So we had a couple points of business. Before we get into this big topic, yes. though, I wanted to introduce Aaron for a big reason because he's part of one of these pieces. But Ben, you had something first. So one is we talked about Mystery Science Theater 3000 last time, and your love of it was from the movie. Yes. And I was like, you know what? I think I have the movie, but I couldn't remember watching it. So this weekend, checked the DVD collection. Boom, there it was. Yes. Popped it in. And I'm not sure I have ever seen it. But oh. I got to tell you, after our talk and watching it, there are so many like golden one-line zingers oh my God. that I can see why it's so classic. Like oh. you guys have been sitting there. I know what you would have said out loud when they said it. So funny. The movie's great. The movie's Here we go, great. Aaron. We'll start here. <laughs> Goofy clown face. <laughs> <laughs> May your forehead grow tall like the mighty oak. Stand back. <laughs> I command you, stand back. Acting. <laughs> Acting, yes. <laughs> oh, my God. So uh, it was really good. Yeah, great movie. The other quick thing, I just, we've gone so long and I haven't, I, this is very important to me near and dear that we get this out there. Okay. You gentle listener, yes, you, you may notice that this podcast among the other podcasts that you listen to, sounds darn toot and fantastic. It's clear. It's clean. There's no white noise. There's not banging around. There's not dishes. There's not dump trucks. There's not cats, dogs, living together, mass hysteria. It is like sweet, sweet, educational, entertaining honey in your ear. And I just need to put that out there that we have hired a fantastic audio editor Craig, which we really haven't talked about before. And I think Craig has just done a fantastic job. On this. Chris is so mad shaking his it's head. No, it's Chris. Chris is an audio engineer extraordinaire. It is not even his profession. And he's so good at it. And so Chris spends hours upon hours every week working his butt off so that this is an enjoyable and appreciative experience that you can have. And it doesn't sound like garbage uh, and that we don't sound as garbagey as we could have uh, so anyway, just a big shout out. And I want to I recognize the effort and the work that Chris puts into this podcast every freaking week. Thank you, man. Well, thank you, sir. I really appreciate that. It is a labor of love. Sometimes I you know, want to chuck the, the old computer out the window. But when the day is done, like it's so much fun to do that it's worth all the work. And if you love what you hear, tell someone about it, please. Uh, we'd love to help spread the word. And you know, if, if you got a little love on the, uh, the Apple podcast, iTunes, give us a little rating. That would be... And a written review would be awesome as well. We'd yeah, sprinkle, sprinkle a little pat patitude on there. A little, little patitude. Just pop a little, little something on there. If you're a meteorologist, write in an expertise. Leave us an MST3K Ooh. style of comments and you know, show us your wit. You two could riff this podcast. Riff just, this podcast. Just write us at 80s High. <laughs> all right. That's all I had for home room. Thank you. Thank you. I didn't well, thank you. Out. Speaking of patitude, our guest on this episode, Ben, showed me a little bit of patitude. He listened to the episode. Thank you. 
And he's like, hey, dummy, you're talking about the zombies and, you know, why they you didn't know them. And they got into the Wait, hall of, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Are we getting a listener correction? This is like I've been waiting for this on a podcast for a month. This is like a thing. People we get have mad an, um, and they correct actually you. from one of our listeners. Aaron, can um, you uh, tell the listeners the errors of my way? Uh, you said you didn't know who the zombies were, and uh, you and I used to sing Time of the Season all the time, being stupid. <laughs> and that's their big hit. <laughs> boom, boom, boom. It's the time <laughs> of the season. <laughs> yep. And Dave Matthews Band does a cover of it. So oh my God. shame yeah, on me. Shame on me. So officially, sorry, zombies. Sorry, zombies lovers. My bad. Now, do I think that puts them ahead of Pat Benatar still? I'm going to say no. I'm no. going to say no. Sorry. Sorry. I, I would agree with that. I just wanted to point it out that you knew who they were. So. Aaron loves to prove me wrong. So that, that is not was true. <laughs> False, sir. False. Amazing. <laughs> that was great. Thanks for the fix. It's a good catch. Do we have any more business? I mean, we have one more point of business. Of course, we have to hear the sweet, sweet morning announcements. Yo, 80s high. I'm Billy and I'm here to share today's homeroom announcements. You know what you should do? You should follow 80s high podcast on Instagram. You know why? Because if you don't, I'll stuff you in a locker. And if you do, you can maybe interact with Ben and Chris. Don't freaking talk to me, though. Today's lunch menu will be chicken tenders. Recognize that? It's the same stuff we had yesterday and the day before. You don't like it? Find another school. You should also join the class of 80s high. Email 80shighpodcast at gmail.com to join. That's 80S. You know why you should? Because you can learn about topics in advance. You can take some sweet surveys and you can lend your voice to a future episode. What's not to love? After school today, me and the Ordo guys, we're going to be working on Jeff's Trans Am. Yeah, it's an improvement over Bobby's Chevy Cavalier. What a joke that piece was. Uh, and then there's some uh, cheerleading competition and there's a basketball game. Yeah, 0-11. Pretty embarrassing, guys. Maybe you can win one. That'd be cool. Anyway, thanks all. Have a freaking awesome day. Come on, wise. All right. Well, thank you for those morning announcements. Coach, Ben, we have to run to history class so we can pull apart this very topic that we're here to talk about today. The Miracle on Ice 1980 Winter Olympics ice hockey game. Let's go. All right. Well, it's great to see you guys in history here. Normally at the top of this class, what we do is we introduce the thing we're talking about. We explain it. And what I thought would be fun for this, Ben. What? Don't ask me. No, this is what I want to do. Ben's going to describe Miracle on Ice and Coach Aaron is going to then grade you and tell you how you performed. (laughs) Oh my God. I'll keep it very simple. Go. So the Miracle on Ice was a famous hockey game in the what year Olympics? 1980. 1980 Olympics. It was a game very close to the final game between America and Russia that took place in Lake Placid, which is in New York. Correct. And people who love sports and patriotism are really passionate about this game. Uh, and, and America won. I mean, that's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, that's a very bare bones summary for yeah. people. It, you know, history wise, it was kind of one of those things where morale was really low in the United States at the time. They were still experiencing gas shortages. And I know there was a famous speech by Jimmy Carter where he said, you know, we're at the time now where 
our people don't expect things to be better in five years. So Mm. morale was really low in the country. We were in the middle of the Iran-Contra situation as well. And on top of it, Russia invaded Afghanistan, which escalated tensions in the area as well. So at one point, even after the team had started practicing and went together, there was at one point the U.S. announced that they were not going to attend the 80 games in the summer. So there oh, were really? fear. Yes. So there was fear oh. a month or two beforehand that the Russians weren't going to show up to Lake Placid. So after they'd been training for months already, there, there was a general fear that Russia wouldn't be here in the end. Oh, wow. Okay. And Russia was heavily favored. So there was a, a big disparity at the time. All of the Russian players had been playing together as a team for years, and they were basically professionals which was against Olympic rules at the time, but they got around it. They circumvented it by, they were employed by the military or they were employed by industry. And so they didn't, weren't playing in an official league. So they still snuck in under the amateur label, but they were really professionals and they were the best players in the world. They had the best goaltender in the world. They had some of the best forwards in the world. And several of these guys went on to have NHL careers later on and are in the Hall of Fame as well. And we were a ragtag team. The U.S. was a ragtag team. Some of them didn't like each other. They were college rivals, um, and they were all – it was the youngest, and I still think is the youngest field of team. The average age of the player on the team was 22. That's crazy. Yeah, so they were all really young. They were all there because they wanted to represent the country instead of – you know, the, the kind of the more personal glory, the way things are now, so to yeah. speak. When I saw how young they were, I had to curl up in a ball with a snorkel so I didn't drown in my own tears of what I haven't accomplished <laughs> by my age. These Olympians at the high, at the peak, the, the most intense game you can play of your sport, and they're like 22. It's still in college, right? They came from like the university league Most of them, yeah. Yeah, most of them were at the University of uh, Boston, Boston University, I should say. And then uh, a lot of them played for Herb Brooks in uh, Minnesota. And only Buzz uh, Buzz Schneider had uh, played in the Olympics before. I think he was in the 76 Olympics team. But other than that, none of them were – I mean, they were pretty unproven, especially as as teams playing together. So – that's awesome. You've, you've hit on a lot of things that I know we're going to revisit. I wanted to just go through a quick zeitgeist review. What was going on in the yes. world leading up to this game? Good, good, good. And to do that, we have to go 2,755 years before <laughs> this game took place. So how ice forms? Do you know why? <laughs> because that was when the first ancient Olympic Games started by the Greeks. Oh, boy. As an athletic competition among city-states in honor of Zeus, Hail Zeus, 776 BC. We're going to pop ahead a little bit to 1896. That's when the first modern Olympics were held in Athens, Greece. So still 84 years before our big game. The Cold War basically starts right as Nazi Germany uh, surrenders in World War II, 1945. There's an uneasy alliance between U.S., Great Britain, and of course our the enemy of my enemy is my friend, Soviet Union. Those fell apart really fast uh, because, you know, there's the communist scare. There were a bunch of tensions. There were broken promises. And so that's, you know, we, we think about the Eastern Bloc, the Iron Curtain that Churchill, you know, famously said, the Iron Curtain has descended upon the land. I know that sounded like John F. Kennedy. Um, yeah, yeah, that was a very good Kennedy. Yeah, yeah. The Iron Curtain has fallen across the land. <laughs> Revisionist history. We shall defend our eyes, whatever the cost may be. Okay, I'm 
no British accents today. They're off yeah, the That wasn't too bad the of a Churchill. <laughs> Thank you. So, uh, yeah, the Iron Curtain. Again, this is where basically USSR, Soviet Union, is kind of blocking itself in satellite states from the West. And it becomes very much this whole democracy or capitalism versus communism. So that was 1945. 1952, USSR joins the Olympic Games as the Soviet Union, really as a display of their power, both to the world as well as to their own people. Then we jump ahead to 1955. This is the Warsaw Pact, where basically that's the defense treaty. It's their counter to NATO. So, you know, the Allies had NATO as this balance of power, and the Warsaw Pact was between Poland, the Soviet Union, and several other Eastern Bloc republics of Central and Western Europe. So again, tensions ratcheting, ratcheting, ratcheting. 1957, 23 years before this game, Sputnik 1 enters low Earth orbit. Tensions again raise. Now our fight has gone to the space race. It's not just arms. It's not just military power. It's not just ideology. This kind of puts the Soviets in the lead. Uh, 1961, the anti-fascist protection rampart is constructed. Do you guys know what the anti-fascist protection rampart is? It's got a much better name. Well, George R. R. Martin just called it the wall, right? I can't remember. I thought I had it. <laughs> What's that wall called, Aaron? You've read the books. That keeps the uh, the White Walkers out? Oh, uh, just the wall. Uh, right. The wall. It's, just the wall. <laughs> it's just the wall. Yeah, yeah. Which then Pink Floyd sang about, all we are is just another brick <laughs> in the wall. So, <laughs> so that mouthful of a term is what the Soviets called the Berlin Wall. So 1961, they called the anti-fascist protection rampart Berlin huh. Wall. Is constructed between East and West Germany, blocking off the city. And again, it's meant to be sort of this barrier, not only to keep Westerners out, but it's kind of meant to keep East Germans in because a lot of people were defecting over. Next year, 1962, the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis, bringing the world one step closer to nuclear war. This is insane. Like to reread about the Cuban Missile Crisis is nuts, how close we were on the brink. It's not an 80s movie, but uh, there's a movie, I think it's called The 13th Day. That's oh. a really good dramatization of the Cuban Missile Crisis. This is intense. Oh, really I'm going well to watch done. that. I think it's 13th it. day. When did it come out? Before we get another Aaron calling in saying, I'm completely wrong. Let me Google <laughs> this movie. It feels in my head like a 93, 94 okay. kind of movie. That would make sense. 13 days. 13 days. Okay. So that's 1962. One year later in 63, that's when John F. Kennedy goes to West Berlin and makes his big statement that the U.S. is behind West Berliners. That's when he famously says, Ich bin ein Berliner. I'm a jelly-filled donut. Apparently, that's not actually true. It was technically not correct, but still everyone. Okay, it, was still it, was, yeah, it still worked. But it's okay, still kind of good. funny. Oh, I am a jelly-filled donut. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Miracle on Ice, this big match that we've talked about at the Olympics, February 22nd, 1980. So the game happens. All right. But I do want to go beyond this game because, again, we're talking zeitgeist. Allow me this indulgence in history class because one year later after this game, Friday the 13th Part 2 comes out. Oh, yeah, of course. And we're going to talk about why that's important. Closely related. All right. (laughs) (laughs) I'm looking at you, Jim Craig. Uh, And then the Chernobyl disaster, uh, 1986, six years later. Largely believed to be the first domino of the fall of the Soviet Union. One year later, 1987, is Reagan's Berlin Wall speech. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. So very good, Reagan. I'm very impressed. Sorry. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this How? wall. Hold on. <laughs> We've got a lot of Kennedy questions already. <laughs> 
And indeed, the wall does come down about two years later, 1989, is the fall of the Berlin Wall. And then Gorbachev enacts a lot of glasnost, which is basically bringing more democracy to the Soviet Union. And in 1991, the Soviet Union dissolves 11 years after this game. And then lastly, the Mighty Ducks movie premieres in 1992, 12 (laughs) years after the game. I will argue, though I could not find proof, this game had to have inspired that movie. Of course. So that, everyone, is your zeitgeist review. Can I just pick up a few little crumbs on the floor? You guys did such a great job, but there's just a few crumbs. That was a lot, but please, please, what you got? I'm surprisingly prepared for this podcast, way more than my lack of sport balling should be. One, I watched a great ESPN Classic documentary on it, Fantastic. so I'm ready there. But in college, one of the courses I took, one of the semester-long classes was called Star Trek and the Cold War. Oh, Because okay. Gene Roddenberry was very opposed to a sort of international diplomacy that America, the American West was imposing. And a lot of episodes are deliberate commentary on our international foreign policy hmm. in a very nerdy, weird context. I actually do have a good amount of Cold War education. But I want to I piggyback off on Coach Aaron. So, okay, <laughs> real down and dirty. The Cold War was this like tense war between America and Russia where nothing was fired, but it was just this never-ending uneasiness that someone was going to start World War III. And one of us was going to launch one nuke at the other, the other would launch 46 nukes back, and then it would be nuclear winter and the world would die. So that's what it was all about. It was all like the spy time and like sneaky espionage and like – these symbolic one-upmanships that weren't really blowing up the other country, yeah. but were kind of like a neener neener. You mentioned Sputnik, but they also got Yuri Gagarin in space before we got anybody in space. Yep. You know, the invasion of Afghanistan, like Aaron mentioned. But so you're at the height of the Cold War right before this game starts. And American morale is really low. You know, you here you mentioned the gas shortage, the Iran-Contra issue. This is not long after Nixon got impeached, which was sort of a dividing thing in the country. This is not long after Vietnam ended, which is a very dividing issue in the country. Mm -hmm. We also had crazy runaway inflation. So, like, American morale is low. And then you're really scared of this country who seems awesome. They're awesome at chess. They're awesome at space. They're awesome at maybe building a bunch of nukes pointed at us. We don't know. There's a lot of tension. I've, I found this great interview and George Foreman, you know, boxer George Foreman, or for most of you know him for his flavorful grills, said that boxing in the Olympics at this time, he felt like it wasn't at all about being a better athlete. It wasn't about proving who had trained the hardest. It was showing which country was better than the other and who was the superpower. Yep. That's the pressure these athletes in the Cold War felt while this was going on. And helping set the stage, like you said, we've got these American underdogs who are these college kids. And the Soviets had won every single Olympic hockey game since the early 60s. Yep. And so you've got a sweet David and Goliath setup coming onto the rink. And like you'd mentioned, they they had won every Olympics for the past four or five, I believe. And they hadn't lost since 1960. Yeah. And they'd won 27 games in a row internationally. So they were were powerhouse. And like you mentioned, they were really seen as not just the best Soviet team, but the best hockey in the team world. in the world. Yeah, yeah absolutely. arguably the best goalie in the world, I think, is what one the documentary said. Yeah, Vladislav Trediak. Vladislav. Yeah, Trediak. And then one of the last, I think they're called exhibition games, is the U.S. played USSR at Madison Square Garden. Got smoked 10 to 3. Smoked. I think that's the last game they played before this one that we're talking about, right? Yeah, I think it was three days before the uh, opening ceremonies. And her books had even said, like, if every single star and moon aligned for us, we're getting silver. 
And that's if everything falls in our favor. This is what, at best, we can achieve. To set this stage, the Olympics aren't in Tokyo. They're not in uh, Vancouver, like we've been to. This is Lake Placid. Can either of you describe Lake Placid? What is the setting for this this showdown? Yeah, have you been there, Aaron? I've not. I, I think it's a more or less a resort town in upstate New York. So there's a lot of skiing. They have all the facilities already. For, and I don't know if... It became a resort town after the Olympics or if it already was beforehand, but I have a feeling mm. it was before. Mm. But uh, so, I mean, it's still that you still can go ski there, do that sort of thing. I'm not sure if you can go lose your bobsled, but it wouldn't surprise <laughs> me that, you know, that might be uh, that might still be a training facility for the Olympic team, too. When uh, Chris introduced this topic and he said Lake Placid, I was like, that's the one with the alligator, right? That's like killing people. Uh, he's like, no, 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 no. It's a different Lake Placid. The Soviets, getting up to this game, stormed their opposition undefeated, and some of their scores were insane. Japan, they beat 16 to 0. That's not a hockey, that's a football score. What is that? Ouch. Netherlands, 17 to 4. Poland, 8 to 1. What? They beat Finland, they beat Canada. Uh, It's closer in those games, but still. Undefeated. The U.S. starts off with a tie against Sweden, which you think like, oh, that's not great, but that's actually... For the team, it's kind of like the first sense of like, maybe they've got some, you know, they got a little something there. And then they go on to be Czechoslovakia, Romania, Norway, and West Germany, which still just sounds so weird to say West Germany and not just Germany. (laughs) Yeah. So bizarre. For sure. And the Czechs was a notable victory because they were considered the runner-up favorites behind the Russians. Yeah, like number two, right? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. I think in the doc, they said like, that's kind of when we thought maybe we could be a real contender. It's really funny. I can't remember if this was uh, Al Roberts or not, but when you have the commentary between the uh, the two sportscasters before it goes to the game, one of them says, manifestly, it's a hockey game. And I just thought that was an interesting way to say it. He basically was saying this is more than a hockey game for everyone, but it manifests itself in this way. Right. Yeah. That, yeah. That, Al Michaels made his career on this game. Al Michaels. I said Al Roberts, didn't I? Yeah, I don't know. Okay, okay. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, Al Michaels, because he said at the end of the game, do you believe in miracles? That kind of what caught that on. But he's a legendary announcer at this point. He's done Monday Night Football for the NFL for years and and the Olympics. And he he made his career off this. And the only reason he called it was he was the only person on the, the team that had hockey calling experience. That's why he got put on the broadcasts. Set the stage for us, Aaron. Hockey in the United States in 1980. What is that like? Well, as far as North America, always been huge in Canada. There's obviously in the NHL, there's several Canadian teams. So it's kind of one of those things, even now to a degree, where hockey cities are, you know, predominantly Pittsburgh, Washington, D.C., believe it or not. But, you know, your original Seattle, six teams. Seattle, uh, maybe? <laughs> not yet. <laughs> but uh, it's kind of non-traditional now. You, Tampa Bay and Las Vegas are two of the top teams in the league. Yeah. But back in the early 80s, you're talking, you know, Boston Bruins, Chicago Blackhawks, New York Rangers, some of those traditional teams. And then the Islanders were really good in that era. And that was right before the Gretzky era when mm. he kind of – ushered hockey into the mainstream, more pop culture than it was before. Right. So, you know, you're talking 1980, you've got your traditional areas of the country where hockey's popular, Minnesota, North Dakota, Maine, Massachusetts. Outside of that, people don't really know hockey in America at the time. 
So we were also losing the Cold War of hockey fandom to Canada. Yeah. <laughs> That's what you're the saying. Cold Rink well, War, it is exactly. the national sport of the country. So right. you got to give them that. Right. <laughs> well, with that said, Ben, where are we going next? Are we going to chemistry class this week? So the chemistry teacher was working on a new experiment. He was trying to do a little side hustle to finally get noticed by the university. Spilled yeah. a little water. There's a bit of an outbreak in the chemistry lab. The doors are locked. A lot of people got out in time, but there's some people who are inside and the banging on the windows have stopped. Long story short, you can't access the chemistry lab right now. Is this the chemistry teacher in Gremlins? Did he spill water on some mogwais? Is that what happened? I received a letter from the administration of the school that I am not at liberty to say which teacher was involved, but there was water, fur, and reptile skin uh, involved in the experiment. Oof. Well, um, good luck to them all. Yeah. However, like any school, we can't just get away and have recess for a period. No. Uh, we have a new period coming in that we're calling gym class. What could be yes. more appropriate to learn and talk about the Miracle on Ice than gym class? We're going to PE with Coach Aaron. <laughs> I need to point out that I have not washed this gym class outfit all year. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm not sitting next to that guy. <laughs> all right, jerks, to the locker rooms. <laughs> I want to hear at the top of gym class, I want to establish, so, you know, our listeners have been with us for a long time. They know we're obsessed with pop culture. We love it. We like to talk a lot about it. And even like beyond pop culture, just sweet stuff for fort building and that kind of stuff. Yeah. But our listeners have no idea, besides our pithy throwaway sports ball comments, where we sit in the world of sports, our knowledge, our comfort with it. Uh, and especially now that we've got Coach Aaron here to educate us. Can we like lay a little groundwork about where we're all at with, of course. Sp- with sporting and hockey? So never good at sports personally. In school, hated team sports. I was terrible at them. And I was always bad and people would yell at me and, and made me hate them even worse. Uh, but individual sports, I've come to enjoy playing a little bit. So like Aaron and I have played tennis before for a while. Nice. Love bowling. Uh, volleyball can be fun. I like playing games where it's like friends and no one's taking it too seriously. And you're just having a good time. Mm-hmm. Additionally, I would say in terms of viewing sports, I don't watch them in my regular life. However, I've been to a lot of collegiate basketball games. I've been to a lot of college level club hockey games. Mm-hmm. Those are my two favorite sports because they're fast they're dynamic. Uh, things are always going on. I've been to my fair share of other sportball games that people around here seem to like. Things like baseball and football. They're just not for me. So I don't even like going to those in person. But love myself a hockey game. Love myself a basketball game. But I don't really follow it outside of going to the things in person. So I played soccer year-round as a kid. And that's sort of like Help launch everything. Like, I you enjoy- played sport ball. I played a sport ball. You, I, you act like you have no clue. You were a sport baller. Kind of like you. Like, I really enjoy socially playing sports. Like, in college, like, club broom ball was kind of fun on the ice. You know, ultimate frisbee. And, like, in my adult life, I like more non-traditional sports. Like, mm. I like scuba diving. I like sailing. I like mountain biking. But, like, things pretty much on a field or a court, not really my jam. Yeah. And when it comes to spectating- I actually really enjoy watching sports live, like being in an arena and watching it. This will come as a huge shock. But yeah, in college, I was on the spirit club for the football team, the basketball team, and the tennis team. I am beside myself. Shocking, right? Shock, indeed. (laughs) There's few things I love more than like sitting in a baseball stadium 
or now we have a sweet soccer team in our neck of the woods. And like just that vibe, like the food, the smell, the sound, the music, watching everybody play. That's great. There is no worse punishment to me than having to watch sports on television. Ooh. Even if it's if there's so much on the line, if this is the game, yeah. but it's on TV, oh my god. So yeah, I love in person, but televised, blah. So we're, I mean, we're similar. We're fairly similar in that yeah. regard. Coach Aaron, though. Aaron, I know, Coach Aaron, you have a much different story. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, you could say that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he invented hockey. That's right. So, <laughs> Mr. Cup, give us the rundown. <laughs> now, I, I've uh, been an avid sports pa- fan my whole life. Um, I played baseball growing up and basketball. We had the biggest backyard in the neighborhood, so everybody was at my house year-round. We had Mm. the basketball goal out in the driveway, and we played baseball in the summer. We played football in the winter, and it's amazing we didn't break anything more than we did doing so (laughs) without ads. Uh, Once somebody got their shoulder separated my senior year of high school, I was like, "Eh, it's time to stop playing padless football. Ouch. (laughs) But for pro sports, I grew up watching my dad watch sports all the time and I would Mm. watch it with him. And the next thing I knew I was into it as well. And I've been to women's national team games for soccer. I've been to the men's world cup qualifiers as well. I've been to a Sounders game out in Seattle, but I've been to plenty of NHL games, um, plenty of professional football and baseball games, more based. And I've been to baseball games all over the country. So I've got a pretty good knowledge base over the last 30 years. <laughs> For sure. And, and two follow-up questions. The first one is, what sports do you or have you played? And also, would you say hockey is your number one sport? Baseball and basketball were the two sports I played growing up. Okay. I'm pretty good at eye-hand coordination, anything. So, well, you're a golfer nobody, too. Yeah, I do play golf. Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, I played golf in high school all the way up to that. But uh, anything I hand coordination, I'm pretty good at. Soccer, I'm no good at. But I didn't grow. <laughs> nobody played it around. I grew up in the Cincinnati area, mm. and when I was young, nobody was playing soccer. And then it exploded when I was in my teens, and we moved out of Cincinnati. We <sighs> moved to a new town, and everybody was already playing soccer. And I was ten years behind the curve, so yeah. I just never even tried because I just made a fool of myself. <laughs> as far as hockey being my favorite sport. It would be probably a tie with professional football as far as spectating it. And it's definitely my favorite sport to go to live. Yeah. To me, there's no better sport live than hockey. The the sounds, the puck hitting the boards and passes hitting crisp on the sticks and the the sound of the skates on the ice, it it enhances everything. And I I think you can see everything so much better. And it's just such a fast-moving sport. What I love about the game is there's this constant flow. It's like always a movement and it's a very graceful movement. It's just always, it's very kinetic. Like there's always, yeah. a, and then you add in, like you said, those sounds. There's something about it that I agree is completely unlike any other sport. I don't know. I think it's so much fun. For sure. It even has a olfactory sensation to it as well because the arena smells different when they've got the floor pulled up and you can smell the ice. And it's, right. it's good for all the senses to attend a game. <laughs> Yeah, it's sort of like fresh ice mixed with spilled, cheap, overpriced beer <laughs> that have glued your feet to the concrete beneath your seat. And for the OCD side of me, when that Zamboni just makes that ice look mm. pristine and now hopefully the driver is good and they don't miss a spot because that drives me crazy. But yeah, there's something about that. It's it's magical. 
I need to clear the air before we get into this. For all of our listeners, how good are the three of us at ice skating? I cannot do it. I'm terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, good. I love to ice skate, but I haven't figured out stopping. So I just go and I smash into the board. And then that I turn sounds to like me snowboarding. Yes. <laughs> all right. So just as we get into this critiquing the American and Russians plays, let's also be clear that the three of us can't skate that well. I will not be critiquing anything okay. of the kind because me personally, <laughs> I mean, you know, there's there's things you can ask like, why did that happen? But to me, it's not a, come on, right, open right. your eyes. Right. I would only be critiquing in the sense of I know what good hockey looks like and I know what bad hockey looks like, regardless right. of whether I can do it or not. That's right. a f- yeah. fair statement. It's not yeah. like what I would have done in that situation. To be like, look, I would have been sitting in row 19 with a with a hot dog. I would not have been on the ice. So I can't say anything. Okay, that's helpful. All right, let's do it. Let's. And I feel good. Aaron, what's your first memory of this game? And then also, when did you first kind of take it in and really like watch it to understand it and enjoy it for what it was? I was about four when this game was played, so I don't have specific memories of it, but I do remember having it on TV at home and it being taken seriously. Mm. Then in the later 80s, um, my dad took me to go see Wayne Gretzky play when he was with the Kings, and I was all in on hockey at that point. (laughs) So after that, I started following the teams, catching any games I could because you know ESPN showed some things. And then finally, a few years later, probably in the early 90s, I, I'm pretty sure ESPN showed uh, a replay of it. Okay. I watched it on there, and that was the first time I really got a good feel for what happened in the game and the gravitas of the game as well. And was that VHS or Betamax? <laughs> <laughs> Laserdisc. Laserdisc. Yes. <laughs> At the start of the game, Al Michaels points out two things. The most expensive ticket to that game in 1980, what did a ticket to this huge, intense showdown cost? $76. 76 Is he close? He's very close. Wow. <laughs> $76 to see an Olympics game seems like nothing. It's $67.27 wow. is what he said the top ticket was going for. And that scalpers were in the parking lot selling them for three times as much. I tried to go see the gorillas two years ago and their tickets were $500. Yeah. <laughs> yes, but triple that. What's that? $180, a little close to $190. Yeah. And $1980, that's probably like $1,000 today. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. I should have run the numbers on that. But I was, yeah. when he was like, when he was so aback of like 67 27 I was like, are you kidding me? That's a dinner. Well, yeah. That's a nice dinner. You're out. talking about when gas was 40 cents a gallon and yes. you had to wait in line for it. Right. So, yeah. I want to give a little more context, Chris. You said this phrase earlier. So the full statement that Al Michaels starts is he says, in a political or nationalistic sense, I'm sure this game is being viewed with varying perspectives. And then like you guys said, manifestly, it is a hockey game. Right. Which is sort of a heavy intro. Yeah. But yeah, so the game's underway. So Aaron, what would you say is sort of the feeling and the mood of the first period? Well, the Russians dominate. (laughs) (laughs) They completely dominate the U.S. And the fact that they got out of that period tied is shocking. Mm. Uh, The goaltender uh, we mentioned, Tradiak, he was the consensus best goaltender in the world. And he gave up two really poor goals Mm -hmm. in that game. You can feel it. The U.S. is on their heels the whole time. Almost all of the action in the first period takes place in the United States defensive zone. And they get a couple lucky bounces, and the goalie gives up 
uncharacteristic goals. The first goals from the wing near the blue line, way out. I mean, most goalies with any salt are going to make that stop. And then the second win is just kind of a fluke. The guy comes off the bench, the puck goes through, About the guy takes a shot from outside the attack zone, yeah. and the goalie gives up a long rebound that he... Again, very uncharacteristic of him. This is Mark Johnson, right? Is that Mark Johnson who hits that yes. one in? Yes. And, and that's the one that scores. ties up the game, right? Right. Just with a second left. One second left. That's insane. And they had to like stop because the clock showed, like the official clock in the rink showed zero. And they're like, no, 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 no. There was definitely one second left. Yeah. That's intense. The Russians had already exited towards the locker. So they had to bring three people back out to drop the puck for the faceoff to end the period officially. It was interesting, too. The commentators were saying during the game, like the crowd, it was just this like thick tension in the air when the game starts. And I think, you know, particularly toward the end, it started to ramp up a bit more. But it just felt like, I don't know, it's hard to tell on that old broadcast what the the den of the crowd actually is. It felt really quiet, though, at the beginning. Like it's just a very hushed. Yeah, holding their breaths. Yeah, that's yeah. a good way to put which it. Which is also, it's like in so contrast to watching sports today, which is like a, an audio sensory overload where it's always like, dun, 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 dun. And there's like music and everyone's Are got their entry songs. We're getting pelted in the face with t-shirts and hot dogs. Like, yeah. And so like, if you think about sport ball today as a spectator and then you watch that broadcast, it is eerily quiet and softened in there. It is for sure. It's very different to just the... The broadcasts back then compared to now, because like Chris was just referencing with the sound effects, you know, it's so hype and produced now. Yeah. And things were a lot more basic. And when you watch the replay of that game, there's no graphics. You know, nowadays you watch a game, you see exactly where the clock is at. You see the score is displayed. You see all these little information tidbits. The couple times you see them inset the clock in the third period to show the, the time towards the end of the game. But before that, you're relying completely on the commentators. Yeah, this is a very bare bones production. That's the one thing I did notice watching this. I'm like, there's no flash. No, I'm so glad you brought this up because that really struck me throughout the game is like the wall around the rink. There's no advertisements on it. There are no banners. When the camera pans mm. up and sees like the scoreboard hanging over in the middle of the rink, it's not showing people like the kiss cam or like pouring beers on their babies <laughs> or something like it's the it's the score. And that's it. And like it was just such for me, it's kind of a brush of fresh air to not have that layer of intense shoving marketing in your face for all mm. game. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think that that's necessarily an Olympic rule. It may be, but uh, yeah, you you definitely get it in all other professional sports now. Yeah. But there are some differences in the Olympic hockey and international hockey versus, say, the NHL. So okay. that's one thing that struck me rewatching this game. And anytime I watch an international game is the rink's about seven feet wider than it is in professionals. Oh. Okay. So it really lends to speed and accuracy and passing, which the Russians had. And you can see with U.S., there's a lot of bad giveaways, a lot of bad turnovers when you watch them play. They just they aren't as crisp and concerted as the Russians are throughout the game. Interesting. Okay. The tides turn, I feel like, second period. Aaron, how would you characterize second period of this game? It was still intense. The Russians dominate this period. And the U.S. is on their heels. They're not really getting many scoring chances at all. 
And truthfully, if it wasn't for Jim Craig playing so well, it could have been another 10 to 3 blowout. Mm. But he manages to keep them out of the, the net except for on one power play. Jim Craig is a beast in this game. My yeah, God, I was so impressed. I want to ask about goalies, but I'm going to wait till the end. So Tikhanov at the beginning, he does something pretty bold. Yep. He, as soon as he gave up that poor goal at the end of the first period, he immediately pulls Tradiak and puts in Mishkin. Yeah, his backup goaltender. Yes. And Tradiak is later quoted as saying, if they hadn't pulled me out, we would have won that game. Mm. I saw that in multiple interviews and read that, that this seems to be the critical decision that changed this game of pulling the best goalie in the world out yeah. of this critical championship game. On the other hand... He gave up, like Aaron said, two easy shots yeah. in that first period, though. Yeah. So that's like, it's not like he was playing a flawless game, messed up once, and Tikhanov no. pulls him out. I mean, it's all speculative, but I just found that very interesting. You still do have to wonder. We all have a Monday. You know, it all starts a little rough sometimes. <laughs> you just get a little cup of joe in the body, and then you're ready to rock. Come on. Tradiak has also been quoted as saying, we overestimated ourselves you know mm -hmm. we didn't expect them to give us a game especially if they whipped them just a few weeks before so yeah. he said that we did not play as well as we could have because we were overconfident more or less and Tikhanov would later go on to say it was the biggest mistake of his career so mm -hmm. he definitely acknowledged that in retrospect the, the confidence you come in being the top team is you feel like, okay, I'm going to pull my other guy in because we have some breathing space here and quickly became to realize that that's not truly the case. I felt this is when things got a little more heated up. Like there was a little more aggression between the players against each other. Yeah. Things start getting chippy and they start taking shots at each other and grabbing and yeah. For sure. This is another hockey rule I want to try and clarify with you. So one of the things I used to love in hockey are the fights. The fights are awesome. So these two guys, Ramsey and Khrushchev, keep like these little shoves, a little, little push, a little aggression, a little... But they never like what you think in traditional hockey of like the gloves come off, you yeah. pull the dude's jersey over his head, and you just start punching. There was a game on N64 called like Gretzky Hockey or something that there was like the fighting mechanic in it was a big part of that game. Oh, dude, like, let's just go back to the ice hockey game on the Nintendo back in yeah. the 80s where you had the two teams <laughs> the and you could do the fight. The, yeah, right? <laughs> it was like the three size, the skinny right? dudes, the big dudes, and the average dudes. Super fast guys. Yeah. In yeah. this oh my whole God. game, for there to be so much tension, and this is all supposed to be some poetic explanation of the cold war no one ever throws a punch like why why not why didn't that happen you don't really get fighting in international hockey okay i i don't it's it's not allowed more or less i think in international hockey you're going to be looking more at getting tossed out of the game instead of going to the penalty box mm -hmm. they don't let the fighting go on it's only really the nhl that lets you go at people uh, if you even go to a minor league games that for the some of the teams that support the full teams you're not really going to get the fighting, maybe a little bit, but not nearly like you do in the NHL. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. But it is also, to your point, emblematic of the Cold War because there were no actual shots fired yeah. in the Cold War. Oh, so yeah. it's, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking the exact same thing. <laughs> they were gentlemen comporting themselves. I love if that was an instruction like in the locker room. They're like, don't you throw a real fight. This is the Cold War on ice. You don't blow anybody up. No punches thrown. Just make, just freak them out. Make them feel uncomfortable. That's right. 
And at the end of this period, there is a little scuffle. Uh, and I think Craig is knocked down and um, the Soviet player who knocks him down gets unsportsmanlike conduct. I don't think he got it for knocking him down. I think he got it for what happened after the knockdown. Oh, okay. Because that's – it's actually funny because um, I, I recently watched the Miracle movie. I'm sure we're going to talk about that. But when you watch the movie, they kind of – to play up to U.S. sympathies, it looks like somebody just takes a cheap shot on Jim Craig. Okay. If you watch that – the guy that uh, for the U.S. that goes to the box, he cross-checks the Russian end of the goalie. So mm. it was the defender for the mm, U.S. Gotcha. fault for that contact. Uh, okay. He also did the right thing by doing that because the guy was standing between him and the goal and trying to knock the puck in. So it was knock him off his skates so he can't score and then take a penalty and move on and try to defend from there. Well, and something else happens in second period that I hadn't received, but there's there's a delay of game penalty on an American player. As I've talked about modern sports, I don't know how long a real football game is supposed to last. Like, I feel like when you sit and it's like four hours long, three hours long, I feel like if you check out all the commercials and the random BS throughout, football is five minutes long. It was a full professional football game. It's about 40 minutes long, to That's be honest. <laughs> it's, yeah, it really is. I had to laugh when this player got a delay of game penalty. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Only the people who are producing this can delay the bejesus out of this game with our, now here's the Toyota slap shot. See if this little five-year-old Jimmy from upstate the Finger Lakes can make it in the goal. Like, just cutting the tension in every game so much. But no, 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 players, you can't have a second. I don't remember why the guy got delay of game in the Miracle game. But if you flip the puck up out of the zone, if you flip it into the crowd, that's delay of game in today's game. So are you familiar with icing I've heard the word. I know it goes on cake, but I'm not sure how it applies to hockey. <laughs> Delicious. So basically, if you send the puck over three lines behind the goal line, so if you're on your defensive side and you send the puck the length of the ice down behind the opponent's goal, yeah, and it gets touched by your opponent first, that's called icing. It stops play, and the puck, you come all the way back down to your defensive zone for mm. a face-off. So you're right by your goal where you're taking the face-off at. <clears throat> I saw people making changes to their personnel on the ice after the icing. But nowadays, they've changed the rule to, so you don't get rewarded for icing the puck. If you ice the puck, you cannot make a personnel change if you're the team that iced the puck. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. I just want to throw out there ESPN, well, Disney, who owns ESPN, I've got a great idea for you. Look at the Hulu model where there's like Hulu light and then you can pay to not have any commercials during your Hulu stuff. I'm just saying if you start airing games, pay a little premium, no commercials, they just get the game. I think people would pay for that. I'm just throwing it out there, just saying. It's not a bad idea. I mean, this was two hours of solid game. I wanted to watch hockey and that's all it was. It was just hockey. That's what I came for. It was great. Even with commercials today, you watch a professional game now, the broadcast isn't going to be much more than two hours. It's not a time investment. You haven't sold me yet. Good try, Coach Aaron. (laughs) You almost got me there. Nice try. (sighs) Oh, man. That's great. So we're on to third period. Yeah. I mean, a lot happens in this one. Aaron, what do you have to say about the beginning of third period? Russians still dominating, and then they get a slashing call. We love 80s horror films. Does that mean he killed someone on the ice? Absolutely. Okay. He slit his jugular with the bottom <laughs> of the stick. You didn't it. see the part where the guy's head just came off like completely? You didn't it. see that? 
This podcast is now the running man of the broadcast. (laughs) (laughs) Was Sub Zero now Plane Zero? Yes, thank you. Thank you. Perfect. Sorry. Okay, so what is slashing? Sorry, like actually. So that is where you reach out with your stick and you whack down on somebody's hands typically. So it's a dirty shot and you can seriously cut somebody with your stick doing that. Heck yeah. Wow. Now, again, this is another one of those uh, where in the movie they they kind of play it up that it's just a big whack. But in retrospect, watching the game, it wasn't that. It's something they would typically let go. And I believe Ken Dryden even brings that up on the telecast uh, in the original time. He says you know, that they probably should have let that go. Mm-hmm. So the U.S. gets kind of a break. And they capitalize on it and level the playing field. That completely re-energizes everybody in the crowd, and it, it makes the team start thinking, we could win this game. So get another great goal by Aruzioni, the captain of the team. He takes a great wrist shot from the top of the slot, uses the defender to screen where he's shooting from. They go up four to three, and the place goes absolutely bonkers. Bonkers. But what follows then is just a torrent of attack by the Russians and Jim Craig doing everything to keep that puck out of the net. And we're talking like 10 minutes, which in game time is like a year. Like that is the longest time to have to. Yeah, that's intense. The one thing that helped the Russians were always winning and used to winning big. So they weren't used to playing from down and they weren't used to having to because in hockey, you can pull your goalie out anytime you want and add a sixth attacker on the ice. So you can have any combination of six people on the ice at the same time. So they're not used to having to do the drill of pull our goalie with a couple minutes left and get an extra attacker and and try to score at the end as well. So I was going to ask you, why do you think Tikhanov doesn't do that? Is it because they're not used to it or is it just a bad call? Is Is he off his game too? Maybe he's off his game. I personally think it's a bad call if you're just looking for straight trying to win the game. Maybe it's a pride thing, too. Maybe it's some element of disbelief. We're still going to tie this game up. Right. Yeah, I was kind of curious because that that was uh, mentioned as one of the head scratchers and perhaps a series of head scratchers of this game. And not knowing enough about the sport, I was like, well, is this just like a a coach preference, like a play preference? uh, Or is it more of this sense of pride? Or is he just stunned and so off his balance that he's not even considering that? Maybe some combination of there for sure. But any hockey coach, especially in this type of setting, under normal circumstances would pull that goalie with probably two minutes left. Really? There's okay. some coaches that will pull them even earlier now. There's more of a push to that. There's a, a coach that uh, used to play for the Canadians named Patrick Waugh. That's one of the great goalies. And he started pulling his goalie with like five minutes left sometimes. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, okay. yeah. Wow. Like you said, that last 10 minutes is just, it's brutal and intense. Well, and in those, yeah. in those 10 minutes, something that really shocked me is the crowd is going, USA, USA. Watching it, you're actually, there's a little swell of like excitement about that, but it made me reflect like, I haven't heard that outside of like a televised political rally since I was a child, maybe, of just like a big crowd, USA, US, like I just, I haven't heard that. It was kind of like interesting to see that again. Yeah, it could be too that there's just not one polarizing foe for the 
country at large to hate anymore. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, so, and, you know, there's so much going on socially that I don't think that there's the same blind kind of faith, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. I don't know if that's the right way to put it. but. <laughs> so, I mean, this leads to a great question I had. Uh, that sounded really pompous. <laughs> a great question I came up with. <laughs> you had a mildly good point, but I have a great question that it reminds me of. <laughs> <laughs> it's fantastic. So this, okay, thanks, Ben. So anyway, uh, that leads into a question I had, Aaron, which is uh, how much do you think having the home rink advantage made a, a difference in this game? Uh, once they scored that third goal and energized the crowd, I, I, the crowd behind them, I absolutely, it has to energize you. How could it right. not with that many people cheering for you? Right. And I mean, you're, you're the pride in, in representing your country against the dreaded foe. Right. Um, so yeah, they, it was absolutely a factor. And I, I mean, it, it had to have been the driving force for Jim Craig. Every time he made a stop, there was a swell of cheering. Oh my and God. When you look at the final numbers, the Russians had 39 shots on goal to R16. That's nuts. That's a full night's work. Wow. <laughs> he made yeah, yeah, that's 36 intense. stops out of 39 shots. Watching this game in particular, I don't want to downplay any players and their skill. And obviously, everyone is crucial. The goalie seems to be a massive. This is like the quarterback of hockey. For sure. Like, this is the, the one thing where you want the best of the best. Am I wrong in that? Is that an oversimplification? You don't win this game without Jim Craig. Agreed. It's definitely a sport more so than soccer where a goalie can carry you very deep. Mm. The Buffalo Sabres had a hockey goalie named uh, Dominic Hasek. He's a Hall of Famer now. He took them all the way to the Stanley Cup Finals in 99 and they were one of the lowest scoring teams. But he also had what they call a goal against average. It's kind of like ERA in baseball. The It's the average amount of goals you give up per 90 minutes. I'm nodding right 60 now. Minutes. Listeners, I'm nodding yeah. as if I know what he's saying. And I'm like, Wait, oh yeah, yeah, that, yeah you on, know. I'm back. I think, I think I had a stroke. Wait, what happened? <laughs> I, I'm back. What happened? So anyway, he had a goals against average of under two. So he averaged le- giving up less than two goals a game. So that's just one example of a, a goalie carrying – an otherwise mediocre team almost to victory to the championship. So in some ways, it's a game of denial more than it is a game of scoring. Like you think about basketball, it's like 120 to you know 99. It's like it's just make as many as possible. And th- it feels like these low scoring games is as much a game of denial or even more so than it is a game of scoring. Does that make sense? Yeah, because I, there's teams that thrive off of just throwing the puck off the net, uh, mm. throwing the puck at the net, and trying to get rebounds in instead of making classic, beautiful shots. Okay, And that's something that Herb Brooks really tried to drill into the team, all being young, was that we're not going to be individuals. The only way we're going to beat the Russians is to play as a team. Hmm. So, I mean, there's definitely offensive chances you can get just by taking shots that really don't have a shot of going in and hoping that the goalie gives up a big rebound, like bounces off his pads right in front of the net, and then somebody else can kind of snap that into the goal. Okay. The goalie can absolutely dominate. Speaking of which, I did have one last question. I forgot to ask this earlier. I apologize. I mentioned that a year after this game, Friday the 13th Part 2 comes out. Uh, popularly, this is where Jason Voorhees finally gets his hockey mask. My question to you is, if this Olympic game took place, let's say two years later, does Jim Craig rethink his face mask choice? 
<laughs> ah, I like to tie it. Maybe not. There you go. Keep it. Keep it and be more intimidating. <laughs> I got a machete in my stick. It's so funny. We all know that's a hockey mask. And yet in my mind, no one wears that kind of hockey mask. And so to actually see that in the game, it made me stop for a minute where I'm like, he's wearing the Jason Voorhees mask. And I was like, oh, yeah, that used to be what goalies wore before like modern face shields. I thought it was kind of funny. Hello listeners, future Chris here with a quick editor's note. Now, earlier in this episode, I mentioned in the Zeitgeist timeline that 1981 is an important year in reference to Miracle on Ice, and here is where I reveal, of course, my joke about the hockey mask, Jim Craig as the goalie, and of course, Jason Voorhees getting the mask in Friday the 13th. Well, if you're a slasher film aficionado, this is probably driving you crazy because I make a big goof here. Jason does not get the hockey mask in part two. He gets it in part three, and that comes out in 1982. I just wanted to set the record straight because many of you may have been scratching your heads or, again, as Ben always likes to mention, scream into your windshield and punch your steering wheel. So we can all take a collective sigh of relief together. And while I have you here earlier in the episode, Ben also talks about during the timeline, uh, 13 Days, that movie that dramatizes the Cuban Missile Crisis. He wasn't quite sure what year it came out. Well, just for clarification, that movie is released in the year 2000. Okay, I think those are our corrections for now. Please enjoy the rest of Miracle on Ice. You can see there's lots of places on his head that aren't protecting. Oh, my God. Yeah, I mean, a puck goes there, and he's done. Yeah. He's going down. That would crack his skull. So the, the mask upgrades were fast and furious not long after that, and people quit wearing that style. But even in, the, in 1980, you still had NHL regular players not wearing any helmets. Crazy. And that documentary that we watched – uh, one of the earlier games. Yeah, they're all out there without any headgear on. I'm like, what the heck? Yep. Yeah, that and blew my mind. The refs in the Miracle on Ice game aren't wearing helmets. So it wasn't too many years later the NHL started mandating that they wear helmets too. Uh, okay. Everybody had to. And it got grandfathered in. So I remember the last player that didn't wear a helmet, his name was Craig McTavish. And he was playing still into the early 90s without a helmet. Wow. I think those are all my questions for gym class. Finally, thank you for answering all of those. I do want to just polish off the third period just real quick. We haven't even said that they won. So as Coach Aaron said earlier on, that, you know, the, the seconds are ticking down. Al yells, do you believe in miracles? And then zero. And he goes, yes. Everybody is, goes ballistic. And the Soviets are all just standing there at a line, just yes. frozen. Uh, and so then America goes on to beat Finland. And then so they do get gold. They do win gold. And the Soviet Union does go on to take silver medal by beating Sweden. Yes. Speaking of all that spilled beer that I smell with the cold ice. PBR. I, I, I passed that concession stand and I saw a hot dog sandwich back there that looked really good. Ah. So <laughs> It was right next to the hockey puck balls and, and the then, yeah, stand. Exactly. <laughs> and then they serve a bowl of nachos in a Jason Voorhees mask. Like you just eat them out of the scoop them out. <laughs> Unfortunately, mask. yeah, the cheese oozes through all over your lap. So you need a, a, a rain poncho to I eat them. So. So to eat. And like it keeps falling out through the eye hole. The cheese is just all over their pants. Oh my God. Uh, That's okay. awesome. Let's go get some of that.
On Friday, August 13th, an all-new three-dimensional process will put you in the picture. Whether you want to be there or not. Friday the 13th, Part 3 in Super 3D. Join Jason in the woods on his day, if you dare. Friday the 13th, Part 3 in Super 3D. Rated R. Friday the 13th, Part 3 opens Friday the 13th at selected theaters and drive-ins. So I just got back from the locker room because I had to go shower off after being covered in ice cream because I got the Jason Voorhees mask ice cream bowl. And that was such a stupid choice. Well, and then we got in that big fight and we just spilled PBR over each other. So we were just – we're drenched. We're, we're dirty. We're just a mess. So yeah, we had to cool I off. I was sucked to the wall like a Velcro wall at one of those entertainment places with all the beer on me. It was <laughs> disgusting. Spend five minutes in the penalty box That's, for five. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Unsportsmanlike conduct, sir. Oh, okay. I guess what I want to talk about in contemporary culture, first off, would be just the outcome of this for the players, for the sport. And then I think later we can talk about pop culture. What is notable to you guys in the outcome of this event? I'll give it to Coach Aaron first because he'll have the actual (laughs) insight. (laughs) Well, as far as the individual players, uh, a lot of them do go on to have professional careers or international careers. Jim Craig plays a little bit in the NHL, but not much, Mm. surprisingly, yeah. I think he just didn't play as well. In, in oh, the, uh, okay. Yeah. So I know he played, he got drafted by Atlanta. That was where the Flames were at the time. They're in Calgary now. Um, so he played for them and a, well, one other team, but I don't think he played even 60 games in his career. I think it was like, you know, a, oh, wow. maybe a handful of games yeah, that he started. But some of the others went on to have really good careers. Uh, Neil Broughton, he played for the Minnesota North Stars for a number of years. Mike Ramsey played for the Sabres for a number of years. He was a really good defender. But honestly and truly, the people that had the best careers afterwards were still the Russians. <laughs> so Tradiak, he does not go on to play NHL. He retires after the 84 Olympics when the Russians win the gold again. And he's actually the first and possibly the only person in the Hall of Fame that never played a game in the NHL. Oh, wow. However, he did go on to coach. Um, He got hired by the Blackhawks in Chicago, um, and he's coached some of the best goalies in the world since then. Uh, Ed Belfour, Dominic Hasek, the guy I mentioned earlier that carried the team by himself to the Stanley Cup, more or less. And then some of the others still went on. Uh, Vyacheslav Fetizov. Uh, Slava Fetizov, he, he wins the Stanley Cup with the Red Wings. Mm. I think four of the different Russians make it into the Hall of Fame in the, when it's all said and done. Wow. So I, I think it kind of proves that you know Herb Brooks wasn't looking for individual talent when he put the team together. He was putting a team together to, right. to win as a team. While some of them had you know nice careers, none of them went on to have ridiculous careers in the NHL. Yeah, I have that 13 of the players, the U.S. players, went on to go into the NHL and have careers. Yeah, the few that I mentioned were the more notable players. Right. Mike Ramsey played for 15 years or something like that in the NHL, and so did uh, Broughton. Silk had it played as well. Um, there was another one too, I apologize. No, it's okay, but I have here that three of them played over a thousand NHL games. So it's probably these yeah. three guys who what? went on to play for fifteen yeah. years. Thousand games. That's incredible. Yeah. Come on. Amazing. They play, play eighty two a year. So that's oh a my lot. God. So they all played over ten seasons. Wow. And uh yeah, I also have in the eighty nine ninety season, Soviet authorities permitted six 
1980 Olympians to join NHL clubs. And Fatizov was one of those, and he won with the Red Wings the Stanley Cup a few years later. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's awesome. Very good defenseman. What was big about this game is it kind of put America on the world stage as a potential hockey contender. Like, this game really helps tip the scales of what's no longer just our friendly neighbors to the north that everybody thinks of with hockey in North America. You know, now we got we got some guys there who could scrap around a little bit. I think it drew a lot of interest into the sport mm-hmm. where it wasn't there before other than a lot of those niche markets uh, in the northeast and, and up north. And then following that, you've got the advent of Wayne Gretzky, arguably the greatest player of all time. Mm-hmm. He comes on, wins seven of eight years in a row in the NHL. And then in 1988, he decides he wants to go live in L.A. closer to his wife, who's a model, of course. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> and so he asks the Edmonton Oilers, who are out in the middle of nowhere in Alberta, <laughs> to trade him to the Kings in Los Angeles. And from there, the sport enjoys its biggest growth period of fan interest, and it explodes from there. And truthfully, that's where I got into it. They started showing exhibition games, and like I'd mentioned before, my my dad had take took me to a, a Kings and Rangers game when Gretzky was playing, and it was I was sold after that. I mean, in 1999, Sports Illustrated said "Miracle on Ice" was the top sports moment of the 20th century. Yeah, bold statement. Not bold in the sense that it's risky, bold in the sense of like, of everything that happened, right. like this no, is the thing. Nobody was there yep. when I got par on the putt-putt course at uh, Myrtle Beach. That's <laughs> kind of a big deal. I'm going to tell you right now, that Viking ship, yeah, the whole number 12 is a doozy. So. I always hated the windmill. Hole. <laughs> yeah. Yes. yes. But like speaking of these big broad statements, like so the Cold War portion of this game, there were some great quotes from that ESPN documentary. So Gerald Ford called it a 10-strike in the Cold War, which is mm. that a bowling sport metaphor nested in about a hockey game? Ooh, nested a in strike? a geopolitical commentary? Yeah, a 10 strike in the Cold War. Interesting. I'm not familiar with that term. Right? Like, is that a bowling thing? I don't know if it's indicative of something else or if it's referring yeah. to bowling. He didn't yeah. call it a turkey, so it wasn't three strikes. I don't really <laughs> yeah. know. It's, it's kind of like... Is a 10 strike a strike? Like, is a hockey puck a ball? Right. Like, this is just like a six strike. Like, no one hits six yeah. pins and no one goes is, strike. Yeah. Like, that's not a thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh. But that like we said, restored the pride and patriotism that makes this country so great. So, you know, like mm. we we're saying, like, it was a rough time in the States. I mean, we heard the USA, USA. And then I forget who in the documentary said it, but they said it was the last real event of the Cold War. 11 years later, 1991, the Soviet Union breaks up, which is sort of another end to that era of the Cold War, Mm -hmm. as far as contemporary culture goes. Yeah. One thing that I saw, uh, 2002 Olympics is the first time the US hosts an Olympic game since 1980. Uh, This was in Salt Lake City. And this was one year basically after 9-11. And uh, the 1980 U.S. hockey team had come back and they all get up on the stage and they're holding up the Olympic torch. And it was just another one of those like great moments of like solidarity and people coming together. Again, the Olympics kind of being representative of something much bigger than sports themselves or the players or the countries even. So I thought that was cool. Herb Brooks came back and coached the team that year. But sadly, a year later, he died in a car crash, 2003. That was a blow. 
everybody talks about what a great coach he was. And I mean, you know, there, I'm sure you read excerpts of his speech before the game, you know, his great motivational speech of, you know, you were born for this and you earned the right to be here. And mm. they may beat us nine times out of 10, but tonight is us. Tonight is where they're going to be the winners. Yeah. Sort of thing. yeah. But the things he did for his team, um, I watched a interview with Jim Craig and he was saying at one point, they weren't sure if he was going to play. And he only went and played for the U.S. team because he promised his mom he would represent and she just died. Oh. And then on top of Oof. it, his father lost his job. So he had the option of going home to support his dad because he could have went and played professional hockey at that point and started getting money. And Herb Brooks got a personal loan for his father oh, so he wow. could stay on the team. Wow. Mm. Everybody talks about on the team what a great – human being he was aside from a hockey coach right and that's just one example that's awesome ben do you have anything else before we talk about pop culture stuff so on the syllabus for contemporary culture this class is about talking about how this thing influenced other things going forward so when i look at like miracle on ice something that seems unique in it is of course the drama of the geopolitics surrounding it the cold war that gave it all this more meaning that people layered onto it for themselves this interpretation of, of the event and I think that has really carried on of having to layer more things on to make the sport more interesting. Like, I feel like when you watch the Olympics today, everyone has had this tragic thing they've survived to make it to the <laughs> Olympics. It's not just like, hey, I'm really passionate about this sport. I trained really hard and here I am. It's like they've lost everyone they loved. They saved an orphanage of kittens. So there has to be all this personal drama. And if it's not that, there's 36 layers of statistics. Like if you turn on ESPN, 90% of the time there's not a game on. It's watching other people talk about the game and the 9,000 statistics we've assigned to watching the games to make it interesting. So I think – I don't know if like Miracle Nice is the first to add that sort of drama story on top of it. But the idea of needing to dramatize sports to make them really engaging I feel like has carried on a bit. I would agree with that. And I think that that emotional side is always played up in every Olympic broadcast. Yeah. But I also think that that Cold War aspect, that us versus them, that we have to show them that we can stand up to them and, and match them and beat them at their own game, that absolutely drove interest in the miracle on ice, for sure. Because yeah. hockey was more of a niche sport then. But it wasn't so niche. I, I don't know that you get can you believe in miracles if it was a curling match? Right, right. You know, it's it's still got to have the right setting and, and drama in position. Yeah. Kind of to your point, Ben, like often it's we have to find the story of this player, this human connection. I don't think anyone had to search for this story. This was built in world stage geopolitics. You did not have to construct any narrative here. Everyone came in on the same page of what this meant. And that I think is in some ways unique. And, you know, one of the, I think the writers for maybe it was Sports Illustrated. Now I can't remember. I uh, was talking about like people like, oh, is this the next miracle? This is the next miracle. And he's like, shut up. You're never going to get another miracle. It's, that's the whole point. It's a once in a lifetime thing because all of the pieces that had to align for everything to happen isn't going to happen again. Yeah. Everything involved, you can't reconstruct that again or expect it to happen. So if we follow that story and we're saying the miracle on ice was so big because things were so tense between America and Russia, and it was the symbolic defeat of Russia in the Cold War, 
how does that translate today? And I think, I don't know where you guys are on this, but like in my adult life, I can't remember a more tense time between America and Russia. And I guess that was the defeat of the Soviets, but Russia is the output of the Soviet Union. I thought Al's quote still really holds up from the start of the game where he goes, you know, in a political or nationalistic sense, I'm sure this game is being viewed with varying perspectives. And I think today that tension, it depends on what your perspective is. You might think all this international intelligence is just American propaganda to try and make an American party look bad. And so you don't believe any of it. You might believe it, but you're like, eh, it's not that big of a deal. Nothing's really going to happen. Or your perspective might be that this is really bad. Like the Cold War didn't end as all these people thought this hockey game did. That it's like still going on in some way today, even more malicious maybe or or complicated. I'm not sure, you know, everyone who after this game was over, if it really ended the Cold War, like we all wanted to believe in the 80s. I wouldn't say that it ended the Cold War. I think their point was it was maybe one of the main points, maybe the last big main point of the Cold War. Yeah. Because I still remember living through the 80s and the general feeling being screw the commies sort of rhetoric. Um, And Russia was the focal point. And I mean, a lot of that has to be political rhetoric too, because you know, what energizes a a voting base more than a common enemy, so to speak. And a good way for Reagan to stay in in office while he was running up a giant tab on arms racing. You know what I mean? And deregulating our child commercials so that we saw more uh, cartoons and toys. Yeah, cartoons, toys, sugar. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> but you know, it, uh, it's it's funny because that's really where the the national debt started. Yeah. Was the arms race, Star Wars? They were trying to develop a, a missile blanket that would shoot down any kind of incoming nuclear warhead before it could reach land, and they they sunk billions into that. Yeah. yeah. So I still remember the tension most of my life up until Gorbachev came to power, and there seemed to be a softening stance. Now, I don't know that you could call what goes on now between us and Russia Cold War so much as maybe Cyber War. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. the, the disinformation that is directly traced to both China and Russia is it's incontrovertible, basically. Yeah. Maybe the cold part is all the cooling around the modems that are running all of this hacking stuff going on. That's the part of the Cold War. <laughs> but yeah, this is kind of like the disinformation and discord war now instead of the Cold War. <laughs> yeah, for sure. That was a big topic. So I have an even bigger topic. I couldn't help but notice in this game, Jamie Farr uh, is in the audience. Yeah. <laughs> Clinger. Clinger. Yes. Oh. So I don't think we can underestimate the impact Jamie's presence had there Uh, as a symbol of the futility of the cold war you know being in mash for all those years often looked at the the futility the despair the the senselessness of war how instrumental was he in the success of this game for our younger listeners so jay far (laughs) plays max klinger on a show called mash which is a drama comedy about war and klinger was always trying to get out of the war by he was trying to convince the higher ups that he was insane but that was the joke in the thing so you actually saw Klinger in the crowd in the broadcast there's a part where it goes to him in the crowd and I was like that's J.B. Farr well, that's he Klinger. was making that sweet $67 money he could get a ticket that's right. Yeah. Look right. at Fancy Pants. You can afford a $70 ticket. Yeah. Long way from California, though, where they were filming that show. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. No, I just thought it was hilarious. I saw him Good in the catch. audience and I was That's like, awesome. Clinger! So that was my transition over into pop culture. 
And we don't need to talk tons about these, but there were a lot of dramatizations of this game. And we've talked, I think, a couple times about Miracle, which is the Kurt Russell plays Herb Brooks. Aaron, you've seen that one. That's the one you recommended we watch. Did you feel it was like a pretty good representation or what were your thoughts about that movie? Yeah, I, I, I thought it captured the spirit of it. In the movie, they show at the beginning, um, Coach Brooks gives all the players one of those personalities tests, like the Briggs, Myers or something oh, like yeah. that. Oh, yeah, Myers, Briggs. And in the movie, Jim Craig's like doesn't take it. He just couldn't be bothered. Hmm. And they kind of like play that up. And Herb Brooks says, that's why I picked you. I want the guy that wouldn't take that test in the between in the net for me. Because at one point he says, you may not be the starter. You've not been playing well. Huh. So then Jim Craig had said, I fully intended to take the test. I just didn't get to it. I was calling my dad every night and studying. And Disney said, can we play this up? Did it feel oh, interesting. just to give a little extra oomph to, the, to that right. part of the storyline? The other thing sad about that movie, too, was... Herb Brooks died a day after principal filming was done, so he never got to see any of it. I was watching the game first before I rewatched Miracle, and I saw when they score, Herb Brooks pumps his left fist. So I was like, he's definitely left-handed. I mean, yeah. if you're, I'm left-handed, I would never do this. Yeah, right. The right. I would never pump my right fist. So I was watching the movie, and they show Kurt Russell in the film room, and he's riding left-handed. So I looked it up, and he's right-handed, and he wrote left-handed in the film, trying to be as true to Herb Brooks as possible. Kurt Russell. Get <laughs> yeah. you some. Uh, the, yeah, the ESPN documentary interviews Kurt Russell. He's only got one line in the documentary, but he like very much respected the coach and wanted to do it yeah. justice. He does a great Minnesota accent there, that northern accent <laughs> nice. throughout yeah. the film. Yeah. I think he was... Um, Listen up, everybody. I'm Coach Brooks. There it is. The universal, the universal voice. Well, kids, and you know, when you hear Joe Kennedy on our podcast, it's time. It's time to turn the page. But I think it definitely captured the the spirit of it and the excitement and the the build up to it. And I mean, even the intro of the movie, the credits are showing all of these negative things through the Cold War. And it's like showing clips like through Vietnam and clips from Jimmy Carter Mm. and showing the gas shortage. So the credits even served to show the place that America was at in terms of overall morale being really low and how this is what the country needed. Yeah. Yeah. So just a couple others that are out there. Uh, One I thought that was interesting was a documentary, Miracles and Men. It premiered on ESPN in 2015, and it was told from the Soviet perspective, which I thought was pretty interesting, because I think a lot of these docs are obviously from the kind of US perspective, telling the uh, Cinderella story. Cinderella story. Uh, (laughs) Yes. Cinderella story. In the back row. A couple other docs. There's one called Do You Believe in Miracles, narrated by uh, Liv Schreiber, and that was on HBO. I saw that there was a made-for-TV movie called Miracle on Ice, with Carl Malden as Brooks and Steve Gutenberg as Craig, huh. uh, which aired on ABC, and they used some of the actual footage from the game. Yeah, Miracle uses the actual broadcast audio of Al Michaels. That's awesome. Oh, nice. And I really wanted Mighty Ducks. I mentioned this the, in history class. I really wanted Mighty Ducks to be inspired by this, and I could not find any proof. The writer 
said that a main inspiration was Bad News Bears with Walter Matthau. And they may have been riding that wave of hockey popularity that Gretzky brought to it as well, because that was right at the height of his time in LA. You have to think there's like a kernel of it there, and it may not be intentional, but you just have to think there's something to it. Like their opponent, is it in Finland in Mighty Ducks? Their demeanor is very stoic and... And one of the games uh, just, is Iceland. Iceland, that's right. I think, I'm sorry, is that I D3 Finland. though? It's one of them where it's like Iceland. And they chose Iceland because they were like, well, it was kind of played by that point to have like Russian or Soviet. And then they thought like, well, Iceland, like it's perfect. And so that's why that was like their, yeah. their bad guy team avatar. And to our point of like the win of the Miracle on Ice popularized hockey in America. Had we not won, it might not have become popular in America. We wouldn't have had this wave of movies about hockey. You would think not. Yeah. I so mean, maybe it's... that's your tie to the Mighty Ducks. Well, look, uh, it's time we look at the scoreboard and we see where the numbers fall and whether or not we win, lose, or draw, which does result in death by slashing. So, <laughs> Death by slashing. <laughs> I'm going to wear my ice cream mask. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Okay, we're in math class. Ben, do you want to go first? Yeah, I'll get into it. I've got some thoughts. Like we said at the top of that episode, I'd say like what really does hold up, like hockey is a really fun sport to watch live in person. I love being in a, you know, our household has Blackhawk history in it. We lived in St. Louis for a while, so we've got blues and then now I'm, I'm dressed in my Kraken gear, getting ready for our city to finally have a hockey team. In college, we had a spirit club for the hockey team. And their entire job was they would research the personal dirt on the opponents. And then they'd sit up on the higher level and just yell that stuff to get in their heads during the game. So good. It was awesome. Like, they would never even really <laughs> cheer for our own players. They would just yell like, yo, you got dumped on Friday. How'd that feel? Number 22. Like, and it was Those amazing. games are a blast to go to. It was amazing. They were so much fun. So as far as like math class, I think hockey holds up super duper duper well. This idea of the hockey game representing a major blow to Russia in the Cold War, that it was representative of that. I'm not sure how much that still exists today and how comfortable I am with it. You know, we can have international problems between countries, but those are often government driven. And as someone who in the before times loved to travel the world, everyday citizens are not their government. And so when you're like, yeah, we beat Russia in 1980 in the Cold War, take that, take that Soviets, not Russia, Soviets. What's really just like the Soviet government and the American government that were making the problem? Like the average Soviets were probably equally scared and annoyed and irritated and frightened as we were of them. And so this international hatred that is played out in a game just sort of makes me feel uncomfortable in modern times. I don't really dig that idea. I think healthy rivalry is fun. Coach, you said you were from Cincinnati, so there's like the Crosstown shootout, UC Bearcats versus Xavier, and that like local granular level is kind of fun, but when it's like, I I don't know, Cincinnati Reds beat New York, so all of New York is stupid and sucks and Ohio's the best. I think that's toxic. I don't like that. That's not good. The other thing you pointed out was really well, you talked about like, well, okay, this was America's miracle, but remember that's half of the story. Russia went home defeated. It's a very Western story to call it a miracle, because it is. It's our miracle. It's the America's miracle in the 80s, but that's the only miracle to whom it was, and we are a minority population on the planet. And lastly, I kind of talked about this too, but like, I think you really need that drama to like keep sports interesting. It's one of the things that's made it really hard for me to like not be able to get into the sport ball of like, 
So every team in every sport plays like a bazillion games per season. And then each team has a bunch of players. Like, and all the players have these a thousand bazillion statistics you need to follow. But then these players can mix teams with drafting every year. It's so much data to follow. So it still doesn't like hold up for me of like being super stoked about sports with all the data following today. So that's all my math class. Coach Aaron, so like revisiting the Miracle on Ice today, like how do you feel the drama and the excitement and the importance of that game holds up to watch it today? I think it's exciting for the nostalgia factor, for sure. Mm. When you watch the game, you can feel that energy. And if you understand the history leading up to it, you can understand, you know, the gravity of the game and the situation. Watching the game from a knowledgeable hockey fan standpoint, you can see the U.S. had no no business winning that game. <laughs> and it was just a comedy of errors, so to speak, that led to a victory. They worked hard, absolutely, but you can absolutely see that they were outmatched. It's evidential just watching the game, but it's also on the stat sheets. Like I said, 39 to 16 shots on goal. Yeah, They spent most of their time on their heels in their own defensive zone defending their own goal and turning the puck over left and right through the first two periods and, and giving the Russians all sorts of scoring opportunities. And so it really boiled down to Jim Craig playing out of his mind and certain things just happening the way they did. You know, Tradiac wasn't on top of his game. Taking off, taking Tradiac out, which was probably in retrospect a bad decision. But at the same time, you're looking at, hey, my number one goal, he's, his head's not in the game. He's given up two bad goals. Yeah. Take a seat, sir. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. so in the t- I don't think you can really crucify the coach for that. In, in hindsight, sure, but those were really bad goals that he gave up, especially the first mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think it holds up for sure because uh, I think you can go back and you can experience that excitement. But does it have the same feeling for somebody who might be born in the last 15, 20 years? Maybe not. Yeah, good point. People that didn't grow up with the Cold War may not understand the importance of it. Yeah, I, I'll be honest with you. If I had no context, I'd be like, I don't understand why? Like, right. I was imagining some, like, just rip-roaring game back and forth where it's just high intensity. And the game starts off, like I said, it's almost like this hushed quiet. And it does pick up. But what I also found very interesting, too, was you talk about the precision, the skill, the mechanical wonder of the Russian team. And I don't want to say they didn't have any heart in the game, but you don't get a sense that there's any soul, the was it joie de vivre, like yeah, the joy of yeah, life. The yeah. the human spirit seems to be gone. It's duty. It's yeah. you know requirement. It's pride. Sure, absolutely. But there's a, a a liveliness that you don't get a sense of. And I almost have to wonder, like the triumph of the human spirit. I'm going to get a little ridiculous here, but I do believe part of the X factor was that there was that spirit, and maybe it's inherent in being an underdog team. But I also do think when you break it down to the the basics of it, I just I feel like that's a piece of it. And I guess to your point, Ben, to me, it feels like this isn't national hate purposefully in the Olympics. You want to represent your team because you had that sense of pride and patriotism and you believe in your country. Yeah. And I totally get what you're saying, like the gross aspects of that where it becomes nasty and spiteful. No, thank you. Yeah. But, you know, when you see in the last Olympics – Taiwan could not go 
as Taiwan. They were, was it Taipei, China, I think is what they were called? Mm, no. Because China has so much power, they don't recognize Taiwan as a sovereign nation. Yeah. And so to have a Taiwanese Olympian go to that game and represent and, you know, compete against China or anyone else, like, to me, like... The U.S. may not have that, but I feel like other countries have their watershed moment where this is a big thing. And yeah. this, I think, just happened to be the U.S. one right there. And again, it's kind of like the notion of the 12th man on the field. The fan is that extra player. I really do feel like that kind of spirit was that little eighth of a percent or whatever you want to call it that tipped the side over into the, the U.S. win. Nice. So it holds up. It's good. I think so. Yeah. Again, as not somebody who also likes to watch sports on TV, I was entertained. It was good. Puck balls have been shot. Ice Puck cream balls have been fired. has been spilled. <laughs> Nacho sauce <laughs> through the holes. Yeah. Uh, we've iced the puck. People have been disemboweled. Yeah. <laughs> Coach Aaron, we could not have gotten through this. Yes. Without your steady hand on the till. Thank you, sir. For joining us oh, today. Oh, pleasure, guys. This would have been yeah, real absolutely. ugly without you here. <laughs> if I was stuck with just Ben, there oh. would have been some slashing for sure. Uh, you'd, you'd be trying to watch two guys open a jar without hands. It would have oh been real gosh. ugly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so thanks. No, the insight was awesome. That was super helpful. It was a pleasure being here, guys. Well, thanks, everyone. This has Don't been you 80s High. I love doing it. this to Ben all the time. Uh. He hates when I try to close early. <laughs> Without the next topic. Yeah. <laughs> Ben's favorite part. I am going to drive out on the ice machine. What's the, what's the Zamboni? Yeah. Zamboni. I'm driving this out on the Zamboni. I'm going to Okay, you're clearing the ice clearing for the, the ice. next topic. Exactly. We now have a fresh veneer, that, fresh that veneer. beautiful glow. Perfect. What is our next topic of Avi's Eye? So, you know, I'm obsessed with a good origin story. Any movie or any TV show that is about like where something came from. I love that stuff. So when I had this idea, a few days went by and I was like, well, where did this come from? So here are the three. Here's here's where this is coming from. Number one. Okay. Cold War is a really heavy topic. I give us a lot of credit. It's kind of like the Pat Benatar thing where we didn't know much about a topic and we're like, let's let's just go do it. What's the biggest sport ball thing of the 80s we can go do? The pendulum swinging to the other side is what right, I'm getting. Right, so that was so of. real and heavy. I need to go okay. polar opposite, as far away from real and heavy as I can get. One might call a palate cleanser. A palate cleanser, if you will. Sorbet. A, sor- a sorbet. <laughs> it is also March, and the holiday in March, little St. Patrick's Day, had me thinking about luck. I needed to get away from the seriousness, and I was also getting a lot of text messages from you editing our episodes, and how they're just getting really long. They just go on and on and on. Some might say that some episodes feel like they're never ending. <laughs> Next time on 80s High, Artax, Atreyu, and the Luck Dragon, we're going back to the never ending story. I have not seen the never ending story, I think, since it came out in the theater. Yo, awesome. Yes. That's great. So I know basically nothing about it other than Atreyu and then. Uh, the pound puppy that he flies on. The pound puppy? <laughs> Falcor, the luck dragon. Thank you. Aaron knows what's up. Falcor, so. The Millennium Falcor. Okay. The All Millennium right, got Falcor. It. That's so true. So spend the next week screaming, say my name, because next time you plug this into your ear holes, you're going to hear about the never ending story on 80s High. Yeah. <laughs> 
Thanks everyone for listening to 80s High Podcast by Ben and Chris. Our theme song is by Greg Reed at gregreedmusic.com with vocals by Chad Bumford. Show artwork is by Alex Goddard at alexgoddarddesign.com. If you like the show, please support us by passing a note to a friend in your next class. Also, you can rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts to help spread the rumor. Stay radical.